Okay, the book of James. We started in James, um, and we've had two Wednesday night interruptions. I'm having a hard time sort of getting the continuity going, but uh, let's read from the book of James. Are y'all tired or not tonight? Well, stand up with me anyhow. Let's all stand out of reverence to God's word. What do you say? Amen. This is the book that we honor above all else here. So why don't you stand with me and let's read beginning in verse 13 and I'll read through 16. Follow with me in your Bible. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And Lord, direct and be our teacher tonight. Fill me with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you for standing. The last time I spoke to you, which would be two weeks ago now, we started on this passage of Scripture, back up a couple of verses in the text, but I talked to you about the cause of temptation. Now, the cause of temptation, I'm going to give you three C's about temptation. The cause of temptation is in verse number 13 and 14, and then the course of temptation is verse 15, and the caution about temptation is verse 16. So in your margin, you could write those three words. They sort of outline it in your mind, don't they? Number one, the cause of temptation, verse 13 and 14. Well, what I tried to emphasize to you the other night is the cause of temptation. People are not tempted by God. Let no man say, it says there, that I'm tempted of God. Don't ever say that. God does not tempt anybody. He would not entice anybody to sin. We're not even tempted ultimately. Or the, or we, the devil will entice us to sin, but ultimately he does not cause us to sin. You can't legitimately say the devil made me do it because the Bible says that we have power as Christians to overcome the devil. Now, a lot of people might debate that with me, but that's what the Scripture teaches. So, what is the cause, and I'm reviewing because it's been two weeks. What is the cause of temptation in our life? Well, you find the answer right there, verse 14. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The word lust there is a word that means a strong desire. A strong desire. It doesn't necessarily mean even a sinful desire. Do you remember over in the Gospels, Jesus said, I desire to eat the Passover with you. He said that to the disciples the night of his temptation and his crucifixion. He said, I desire to to eat the Passover with you. Same word translated lust here. The original word, same word. 
It doesn't necessarily mean evil. It means a strong passion, a strong drive or desire for something from an internal desire. Now, it can, it's usually translated in the sense of being negative, bad, sinful, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it just means a powerful desire. Jesus was saying, I want to get there and eat the Passover with you, uh, my disciples tonight. So we're tempted, verse 14 says, when we're drawn away of our own lust, strong internal desires. In this case, sinful desires, of course. I gave you an illustration. I think is, uh, it, it just locks it down in my mind, and I'll repeat it because I, I want to get some continuity going here. I, I had you picture in your mind a guy down here on Santee in his bass boat, and he's got his pole, and he, he puts a plastic or rubber worm, brightly colored, long rubber worm. He puts it on the hook. He throws it out there, and he reels it in, in a certain with a certain gesture he knows will entice a bass. He draws that plug on the bottom or a few inches off of the bottom, and that old bass sees that thing coming, and a strong internal desire. That bass lusts after that worm. And pop, he hits it. And guess what? He's hooked. He's hooked. Interesting word, isn't it? Hooked. And we use that word about people getting hooked today. The bass, the fisherman didn't cause the bass to bite. The he may have enticed him. In that sense, he's the devil. But he enticed him, but he didn't make him bite. And the worm didn't require that he bite. He could have laid right there and watched the worm come by him, but he did not. He went after it, motivated and inspired by a strong internal desire, a lust, if you will. Now, to me, that's, that says it. The devil is the fisherman. The desires, good or bad, in the worm, something that we covet, we lust after, as the bass did the old worm there. And then we fall for that temptation. We go for it, and guess what? We're hooked. Now, that was the cause. That was the first message. I spent the whole message on that. Now, tonight, the second point is the, co the course of temptation. The course of temptation and I base that point upon every man is tempted, verse 14, when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The course of temptation. By course, I mean like a road, the, the direction of temptation. Now, there's not any one of us don't need to think through and analyze and truly understand this passage of Scripture about temptation. Because is there anybody here you just never are tempted? No, no, there's nobody, not even close. Is there anybody who ever goes one day without temptation? I probably doubt it. it is because we're broken, we're fallen people, and we're always going to be tempted. Now, the course, here's what happens when the cause of temptation comes by, and like that bass, we strike that worm. Okay, now let's look at the course of it. 
I want you to. Ha- I want to use another illustration. I'll use a. I'll use a plant. I was going to say a weed, but it could be any kind of plant. We'll, we'll, this looks like a weed, so we'll, it's a weed. <laughs> I just made that a pot full of weeds here. Okay. Well, we first of all we have three things. We have a root down here that we hide away for you. The root goes down the ground, and then we have the shoot. The shoot would be this green stuff, the stalk, the plant, the root, the shoot, and then we have the fruit. Three things, the root, the shoot, and the fruit. What's the fruit? The fruit is the part, that's that's what grows on there. And uh, you've eaten the fruit of a fern many times, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) To use my plant over there. The root is lust. Look at verse 15. When lust hath conceived. Lust. That strong internal desire. When it has conceived. And so it's like that seed. We put it in the ground and the conditions became favorable with moisture and warmth and so on. The seed burst open. The life inside the seed was released. And The little plant was born down under the ground where we couldn't see it, out of sight. Well, the plant lies there. We don't know what's going on, but it's it's there, and there's life there. There's not greenery at first, and then time goes by, and it develops roots, and they go out from that little seed, and they gather the moisture and the nutrition, and they bring it in. And then one day, a week or two later, a little shoot comes up out of the ground, a little blade, a little green thing. Yeah, we live in the PD. We live in a farming area. You can go out here and people are, uh, farmers are putting that seed in the ground. They will be very shortly. Some of them probably already have. And you can walk out there a week later and you, there's little shoots, barely little green things, barely sticking up. You wonder how they even had the strength to come up through that soil. That's a mystery to me. How in the world they could even have the strength to break through that dirt. But they do. And then they grow and they flourish. And then one day there's some fruit on that. Whatever it may be, a seed, a blossom, whatever it may be, depending on the plant. And so we have those three facets there. Now the root of sin is lust, that desire. And that desire is never satisfied. One thing about that desire, that lust that we carry in our body, and we only think about sexual things when we use the word lust. But it's far broader than that. It means far more than that. So the greedy man lusts after money. And somebody said to the first billionaire, John Rockefeller, how much money does it take to satisfy? Now you remember what he said? A little bit more. A little bit more. I got a billion dollars in the bank. I'm the only man in the world with a billion dollars. But I need a little bit more. See, it's never, lust, desire, never satisfied. And you ask the man who's burning up with sexual lust, the person who is promiscuous, how much sex does it take to satisfy? Well, more, more. I'm never satisfied. Lust is always there. And I say to the drug addict, how much dope does it take to satisfy? Well, one more hit. One more. 
never satisfied. That burning desire is never satisfied. And uh, you can go on. How much recognition or applause does it take to satisfy you? So you don't need that anymore. Well, a little bit more. Uh, You could go through 20 categories. I think you get the point. The conclusion is that lust, those desires that we have, not all of them even bad, but bad if they're not disciplined, they are never, ever satisfied. The root, that's the root. Look in verse 15 again. When lust hath conceived, lust is the seed, and it produces life, and it's the root. It's the root of sin. The basis of sin. But then it comes up in the, the, the plant, the shoot, the blade, the stalk, whatever you call it. Well, it's sin. So we see now the evidence of sin. The lust, it brings forth sin. Verse 15 there. Now that idea, that word bring forth there, I studied that phrase, bring forth. It's the same phrase we would use for a little child coming out of the womb. A woman is pregnant and she brings forth a child. In fact, it's the same term used to Mary. She brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger. Now, but here it's applied very negatively, sinful, to a sinful thing. So the little, the, the lust, the desire, the seed of a sin is planted in the ground, becomes the root system, and then it brings forth, like a woman brings forth a child. And up out of the ground, or out of the womb, then comes the stalk, the blade. When lust hath brought forth, or when it is conceived, gives birth to. And then the the conclusion then, of course, is the child of our selfish acts is sin. That's the blade. That's what we see. We see sin. We don't see the desire in people's hearts that motivates sin. We just see the sin itself. Now, look at the word sin there. Verse 15, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Let me show you the best definition in the Bible of sin. Go with me. We're in 1 Peter. Go over to 1 John chapter 3, just to the right, about half a dozen pages. Not very far away. 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law for sin. Mark it in your Bible. Here's God's definition, not Bill Monroe's. Sin is the transgression of the law. What is sin? Breaking the law. What law? The law of God. The Ten Commandments. Sin is breaking God's law. Specifically the Ten Commandments, but any of God's laws. Not just the Ten Commandments. Not limited to that, but that probably covers nearly all of it. There's another passage in the New Testament where sin is missing the mark. The idea is of a person shooting at a target and he misses the bullseye. God says, here's the bullseye. And somebody shoots and they miss it. They go over here. Sin is what? Sin is not necessarily something that is not accepted by society. I'll tell you that today. 
Sin is the transgression, the breaking, the walking on the transgression of God's laws, God's holy laws. Now remember what the Hollywood producer, Cecil B. DeMille, the man who produced the Ten Commandments, and he very famously said, after he had studied, I don't even know if he was a Christian, but he studied God's law to make the film, to make it accurate. He studied and studied and studied to come up with a true picture of the law of God in the book of Exodus. He said, I've come to the conclusion that people don't break God's law. God's law breaks them. You don't really ultimately break it. You do for a while. But you'll break yourself on God's law and it will still be there. It'll be intact. So we got the root, we got the shoot, and then we got the fruit. And I can't illustrate that too well from that plant particularly, but the fruit. And what is the fruit here of sin? When lust, the root, hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is finished, it bringeth forth death. And death is the fruit of sin. Death is the fruit. And when you and I think of death, we think of the funeral home. We think of a body, the life has gone out of somebody died at the hospital or at home. But the word, the word in the Bible means so much more. Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is, say it, death. Death. Death, what do you mean by that? And the average person just says, well, I guess that means The life goes, physical death, the life goes out of the body. Yes, it means that. Every time almost I do a funeral, some of you come to a lot of funerals, so I've become very repetitive to you, but I I feel it's very important to tell people at a funeral that death is not limited to just the life going out of the body. That the word death in the original languages of the Bible always means separation. It doesn't mean cessation of existence. It doesn't mean a person's existence has ended. It always means, the word death, every time it's used, Old Testament, New Testament, that it doesn't mean that existence has ended and the person no longer is. It always means separation. Now, if you remember that, you can interpret your Bible so very effectively. For example, the wages of sin is death. What do you mean? Well, the wages of sin will bring physical death. We know that. The wages of sin brings spiritual death. In the day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they died. Well, did they really? They didn't take them out and bury them. No, they died spiritually. Didn't mean they ceased to exist. It means they were separated from God. Their sin separated them from God. So the physical death is the separation of the body and the spirit. And we say so-and-so died in our church. We mean their spirit went up to heaven. We mean their body is here and we take care and bury the body and so on. But we don't mean they, they no longer exist. We don't mean that at all. Now, we talk about death then in many different ways. Physical death, separation of the body and the the physical body and the spirit. 
We talk about it spiritually, the separation of the soul and the spirit from God. I can tell you sin will bring death to a marriage. It'll cause separation between a man and a woman. Death to a marriage. It'll bring financial death. You'll get separated from your money. We got some people over there right now with the Dave Ramsey thing, learning to handle their money in a biblical manner. And we know that the 10th commandment, covetousness, thou shalt not covet. We know that lots of people are in financial trouble today because of sin, because they, they covet things, they can't afford, go into debt, and then their, their finances are ruined. And I could go on and on. We know that the tongue, the Bible says, separateth brethren. Gossip, criticism, strife, separates friends, Proverbs. We know that nationally, that wars are fought because people sin, desire, flourishes, comes up, matures, the fruit of desire becomes a war. One nation says, we want that island over there, like China did recently over there in in the Middle East. And so we have separation. Every time we turn around, sin produces death, which is always separation. Separation of something good from, from, uh, to something bad. Now, I got to hurry. I got about three or four minutes here. Verse 16 is the third one. So we had the cause of temptation in verse number 13 and 14. We have the course of, salva- uh, of, of, uh, the course of temptation in verse 15. And we have the caution of temptation in verse 16. What's the caution? Watch out. Watch out. Do not be deceived. Watch out. Do not err, brethren. Do not err, my beloved brethren. He's cautioning us. Watch out when it comes to what I've been talking about here in temptation. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Do you know... Ultimately, we know that Satan does everything he can to manipulate us and cause temptation. And we know that Satan is a deceiver. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. You don't need to necessarily turn there, but Revelation 12 and 9 says that the devil, it calls the devil that old deceiver, Satan. He deceived Adam and Eve in the first temptation when he caused sin, and he's never changed his tactics He is still deceiving people tonight. He will deceive you. Most people think, you know, that uh, the devil comes and tempts us to get drunk or commit adultery and things like that. In my opinion, the flesh takes care of most of that. A lot of that doesn't have anything to do with the devil. It has to do with the flesh out of control in the life of a person. I don't think the devil wants to necessarily make you into a, a bum stumbling down a, the street, homeless and a drunk somewhere in a rescue mission. I think that most of the time that's the flesh out of control. Do you know what I think the devil wants to do? Stand behind a pulpit. Do you know what the Bible calls the devil? An angel of what? What? Light, not darkness. Do you think the devil is so stupid? He comes and says to people, look, fall into temptation. I'm going to ruin your life. 
No, he's smarter than that. He's an angel of light. He comes and makes things very appealing, very attractive. Very, he's a counterfeiter. He's a deceiver. He comes looking like, looking like something good. That's how he deceives. I love what Adrian Rogers used to say. He said, the devil would rather start a church fuss than he would sell a truckload of booze. You know why? Because the devil wants to deceive people. He's not interested in you being a stumbling, bumbling drunk. He's interested in you bringing dishonor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think he ever said to somebody here, drink this or take this drug right here or uh, I want you to go out and commit adultery and your wife and kids, you're never going to see them again. You can do it like that. He comes and he entices us with a big old juicy worm. He drags in front of us to use my fishing illus to mix my mortifers, metaphors, my mortifers. <laughs> okay, at any rate, I can get by with that with y'all tonight. I'll tell you what, I can say anything. I don't think you'd ma- it would matter. Okay, but at any rate, I won't fuss at you about it. But I didn't get one response out of that <laughs> metaphor bit. Okay. Do you know Kent Kendall is quite an uh, illusionist? He taught Mark Buxton. Mark Buxton has a minister over there in the Philippines. You know what he calls it? The honest deceiver. I said, what'd you call it that for? He said, well, I'm an illusionist and I do these tricks to illustrate the gospel. But he said, uh, I'm deceiving people, but I'm honest in my deception. I'm telling them I'm deceiving them. And uh, you've seen Mark do some of those things here. He He and Kent both are very good at this. Well, I'm going to tell you, the ultimate illusionist is Satan. And he comes and he dangles that worm. He entices us. Look at the last word of verse number 14. He entices us. He puts that seed of thought in our mind perhaps. But we act on it. And then we've got a root. And we've got a shoot. And before long we've got a fruit. And the fruit brings death. Now don't be deceived about sin. And I want, to, I want to say one thing to, because I need to get this in. There are three or four things that I think you need to watch out about deception. I think one of the biggest things that we have been deceived as a country, as a society is, about the idea of sexual immorality in all of its forms. Our country tonight almost has no standard about sexual purity left. Those of us who preach like I do from the Bible, are viewed as being some sort of narrow-minded prudes who are trying to rain on everybody's parade and ruin their fun. But if you preach God's word, you have to come to this conclusion. Sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of marriage is S-I-N, sin. And we're trying to hold the line on it. It's hard. We're one of the, I don't like to say things like this, but I'm going to say it. We're one of the few churches in town will not perform a marriage of people living together unless they make an effort to get it right. And people come all the time, want me to marry them, and they're going to keep on living together. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to hook you up like that. I'm sorry. Now, if you'll move out and make it right, we'll marry you then as soon as you make an effort to show some good faith. 
But what you're doing, if the whole country accepts it, it is W-R-O-N-G-S-I-N, period. It's wrong. It's sin. And nothing changed. It's always been viewed as being sin until until Hollywood got a hold of it and glamorized it. Do you know that sexual immorality is different than any other sin in the Bible? Any other sin. Turn quickly, and I'm, I'm running late, but I, I, I just got to get this in. I won't quit because I've had to quit too many times. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to show you something you need to see from the Bible. Sexual immorality is different than any other sin. Any other one. 1 Corinthians 6 and uh, 18. Flee fornication. You know, it's the only sin I can find in the Bible that the, the Lord says, run from it. Don't even stay there and fight it. Flee. Get out of there. Like Joseph did back there in the book of uh, Genesis. He ran from that woman. He didn't stay there and, and let her continue to entice him when she was seducing him. Flee fornication. Now look at the rest of it. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Augustine, the great philosopher, theologian said, quote, it is difficult to convince people indulging in illicit sex that they are sinning. And he lived a terribly immoral life as an unbeliever and then he was saved. And he said, it is the most difficult sin to convince people that they're even sinning. They're so blinded by the pleasure of it, the desire. And why are they blinded? It's different. Because it involves the deepest part of their body, the intimacy of their own body. Don't be deceived about it. Don't be, I could go on and talk about, don't be deceived by the, about the Savior today. I had three little S's there, sex, the Savior. Boy, we live in a time when there's an all-out attack on our Lord, on His deity. You're seeing it all the time. I need not embellish it. And I'd say to you, lastly, don't be deceived about your salvation. If you are depending on anything other than the grace of Almighty God to be extended to you and the blood of Jesus Christ to pay the payment for your sins, you're lost. If you're dependent on anything, if you're dependent on the blood of Jesus Christ plus something else, you're lost. If you're dependent on your effort and God's grace, you're lost. It is pure grace and it is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. It's not some combination of works and sin. Don't be deceived. That's what the Bible teaches. I don't have time to develop it, but that's what it says. Okay, we'll pick up. New subject, new topic then next week. The Lord willing, if the farmer's almanac is wrong.